Peace and welcome to the Curators of Hip Hop official podcast. Curators of Hip Hop is an international movement dedicated to preserving hip hop culture. In this podcast series, we'll be interviewing people from all aspects of the culture, people who work in front of and behind the scenes. In this second episode, company co-founders Jimmy Thomas and Jermaine Fletcher interview Timothy Wellback, who's an attorney, writer, performing artist, and the professor of two hip hop courses at Temple University. Check it out. Tell us a little bit about the class you teach. Okay. And what it's all about and how that came about, how that course came about, the title of the course, everything of that nature. Okay, so I teach two hip-hop-related courses at Temple University. The first and more popular of the two is called Hip-Hop and Black Culture. And basically, we look at hip-hop as a microcosm of the Black experience and also just how hip-hop is the most dominant cultural exporter in the world. And so, like, I divide the class into thirds. The first third... We look at hip hop evolving from other African derived aesthetics and how there are things in hip hop that Africans have literally been doing for centuries. And so we talk about that. And then we talk about hip hop's evolution from black music in America. And then the second third, we look at hip hop history. So we start around 1973, because I usually start right before Cool Herc's party and, um, on August 11th in 1973. And then we'll cover hip hop history until like maybe the mid 90s. And then from there, the last third, we'll do topical discussions. And so we'll talk about hip hop's response to police brutality, hip hop's portrayal of women, hip hop and cultural appropriation, ideas like that. And so during that last segment, sometimes we'll bring guests in um, too, like during the last maybe five to seven weeks of the semester. And so Um, People like Wyclef, um, Lecrae, Chill Moody, Sky Zoo, Propaganda, um, Mira Fontaine, Nick Grant have come to class before. And so um, basically, like the story behind that class, um, a friend of a friend was teaching it. He had been teaching it a number of years before I was, and he couldn't do it anymore. He had heard about some of the things that I was doing, and he asked if I'd be interested, got me a meeting with the department chair. And so he uh, he and I, the department chair and I, we hit it off. And so he um, brought me aboard and that's how I started teaching that class. And then um, I teach another hip hop related class called No City for Young Men, Hip Hop and the Narrative of Marginalization. And so with that, um, that one's a little more interesting. That one actually was inspired by an album that I um, put out last year. So like I'd been working on an album like the last three or four years. And there was a department chair at Temple and she had heard about my other hip hop class. And she, she said, I have an opening in my department. And she said, you know, like, would you be willing to teach it? And I said, yeah, what do you want me to talk about? And she says, well, you know, I want to talk about urbanization and maybe bring hip hop into it, but you've got a lot of autonomy. And I told her, well, I got this idea or whatever. And so um, I told her about my idea and she loved it. And so like that class, we basically talk about how hip hop communicates the lived experience of people living in urban America. And so like what we'll do is like we'll read like articles one week and then the next week we'll listen to an album that illustrates what we talked about. So like we'll read about like 
uh, urbanization and like the creation of ghettos in America. And then we'll listen to like Illmatic or Good Kid, Mad City. And while we're listening to the album, we'll read the lyrics on Genius. And so like we'll spend time like dissecting the lyrics and talking about how the artist is talking about stuff the scholar was talking about in the in the writings the um, week before. And so those are the two hip hop classes that I teach. And so it's, it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. That's great. Um, I guess, uh, what do you feel like some of the takeaways are about the students? How has, um, I guess, I guess the students taken um, the court, like their takeaways as well as, I guess, your administration? Or um, Yeah, um, the students love it. Um, and I've been really fortunate throughout the years. Most of my students leave telling me it's the best class that they've had. Uh, a lot of them will say things like they never realize just the depths of the culture that they love, just how pervasive it is, how rich it is, how nuanced and layered it is. You know, because like a lot of them, they just they enjoy the music. And some of them are participants, like they might make music themselves or do other things like that. But, but for the most part, um, they they are this is this is their music, their culture, and so they get an opportunity to then like look at it in a critical way. And so um, a lot of them come away with their eyes open and because like we we use hip hop really as a launching point to talk about the world at large, especially when we start talking about some of these topical discussions and stuff like that. So it's really eye opening for a lot of them. And that's beautiful because, you know, you got incoming freshmen, which are like 18. So they was yeah. born in the year 2000. Man, that makes you know, me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so when you're talking about the fifth element and then you're diving into 73 to 1990, they have no idea. You know, even the mid-90s, they have no idea. And their only frame of reference is, you know, like Drake or Kanye, you know. That is so real. Like one time I was comparing a current artist to Mace and I said, you know, so-and-so is as popular as Mace was at his peak. And one of my students was like, who was Mace? Right. And, like, <laughs> and I was like, I was I was blown away because like Mace like ruled hip hop like my sophomore junior year of high school. Mm. And so like and so for him to have even fallen off some of their radars, and you're exactly right. Like a college freshman was born in 2000. And so most of what, what I noticed is most of my students, their point of reference for hip hop is like maybe about five years before they were born or maybe five years after they were born. And so mm -hmm. like, so, and then, but like, uh, so that's usually like as far back as they have real good knowledge. And then a lot of them like really like cut their teeth on like whatever was popular when they were like in middle school or high school. So that's usually like Kanye, right. Drake, Wayne, stuff like that. Right. And, and the way you're using it too, you know, the fifth element is, is very important. And, you know, I know we're going to get into segue into some of your music soon, but I just want you to know that this is very important because it's key to have these different classes, right? Because in one section, uh, and what department is that first class in you? Uh, the first class is in the Department of Africology and African American Studies. And so like... Right. Um, and like you said, like that fifth element of knowledge is so important because um, we talk about everything in that class. Like, and I tell them first day, yeah, it's a hip hop class, but we're going to talk about slavery. We'll talk about the uh, mass incarceration in the prison industrial complex. We'll talk about police brutality. We're going to talk about cultural appropriation. We're going to talk about the N word. And like, we're going to talk about all of that because it's relevant to what we're doing here. Yeah, so it's 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 great. It's a it's a great opportunity to like really build and like and and shape and shape these minds and like and just give them some understanding and some insights into things. And so it's like for me, it's like a, it's a literal answer to prayer to be like I'm teaching a university class about hip hop and we get to talk about it, all the stuff we're talking about. 
How do you feel like um, <clears throat> your journey just as a going back to when you was a student and then, a you know, a professional in law and such kind of prepared you for the classroom? Because I'm sure there's people out there um, that are probably who, who are probably at some point didn't know that they could even be doing what you're doing um, as far as having this job at a college and basically being able to teach what they would consider their passion. And so maybe just kind of, you know, skimming through your path or your journey to where um, you are now might inspire some folks. That's a great question. Cause I didn't even think that I could be doing what I was doing before I started doing it, if that makes sense. Um, and so like when I was in college, I worked for an educational nonprofit. It was called breakthrough and um, the model they had the summer program and the model was they would, it was called students teaching students. And so they'd have like college students teaching middle school students. And so like during the day we would teach them math, science, English, and history. And then in the afternoon, if you had an area of expertise, you can create a class that they called an elective. And then like the students could choose to take the class and things like that. And so I was passionate about hip hop. So I created this hip hop course. And like, you know, back then they required us to make a syllabus and have lesson plans and everything like that. And um, I had some colleagues who saw my syllabus and they said, you know, this you could teach this at a college. And this, at the time, I'm like 19. And so I was thinking, you know, I would love to teach this at a college one day, but I didn't really give it a lot of active thought. I was like, you know, nobody's going to let me do this at a college is what I was thinking at the time. And then, you know, flash forward, I go to law school and I'm still like making music. And so like I got my fit, I got my foot in the culture in one, in one sense and then my foot in another professional sphere. And then when it ended up happening, when I got this opportunity to teach beginning in 2011, I saw that all of this work that I had been doing before had been preparing me for that moment. And so like I had some classroom experience. I'd been thinking about hip hop in a scholarly way and how to present that. I, I still had my fingers on the pulse making music. And then like um, being an attorney, I'd had an opportunity to do some contracts and, and counsel some artists and things like that. So I, I got to see, I got to see the culture from an industry side, from a practitioner side, from a scholarly side. And then um, God gave, gives me this opportunity to step into a classroom and, and to put it all together. That's great. And I, and this next question um is 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 also kind of analyzing the the academic um, sphere, if you will, because I've always wondered um, when it comes to academia and sort of the critical analysis of hip hop culture. Have you ever faced or found yourself at any point or being required to do so, and that is basically overanalyze or have to? try to explain things in a way that maybe is more relevant to how people approach other cultures or other mm. things but you know what i mean like isn't because hip-hop is 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 very edgy to say you know the least and 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 this is quite different than almost anything else yeah that's 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 good um what i would say is I had a lot of predecessors who came before me and really paved the way to let people take hip hop scholarship seriously, whether it's like Michael Eric Dyson or Joan Morgan or Mark Lamar Hill, James um, Peterson, Kevin Powell, uh, Nelson George, Jeff Chang. There are a lot of people who are laying the groundwork uh, and getting these classes in legitimate universities and getting getting um, these elite institutions to look at hip hop as more than just this noise that young people were making. So by the time I'm stepping into the classroom, 
there's somewhat of a respect for what we were doing. So I, I've never felt like I've had to um, change the culture um, per se, but it's more so about there, there have been definitely times where I've had to still kind of present it to people in a way and show that this is not just noise. This is not just young people like dancing around or like being mindless, but there's actual science behind this. There's centuries of cultures behind this and it's worthy of exploration and examination. And so, I mean, I was very fortunate to have people pave the way uh, every now and again. You still got to have to kind of prove yourself to like different scholars and things like that. But uh, hip hop scholarship has come a long way in the last even five to 10 years. People are taking it more seriously. Um, a lot of universities have classes now. People are beginning to publish books about it more. So so we're seeing things turn a little bit. And what are you listening to on a day to day right now? Oh, man. So. um I've made a lot of playlists like on Spotify and stuff like that. So uh, Spotify and Apple Music. And so um, what I most recently was listening to, I actually made a playlist about Outkast called The Headland and Delo. And so it's basically like some of my favorite parts of Equimini and AT Aliens and then people who have been inspired by that segment of Outkast's catalog. And so that's that's what I was listening to like today. Um, mostly, but um, in terms of like people who are like putting stuff out um, this year, I was listening to Sky Zoo earlier this week in celebration of us as an excellent album that he put out. I think it was like in February of this year. Um, Show Baraka based in Atlanta. He's one of my favorite rappers. Uh, he released the narrative in 2016 and then he put out an EP, I think the next year called Politics. That's really dope. Um, there's this guy in Houston, um, Toby and Wigway. Um, he's really bubbling right now. Um, he puts he puts out a song every week called uh, he's got a series called Get Twisted Sundays. And it, it began with like his wife. It was then she was then his fiance, but like she would literally twist his hair. So while, mm. she's sitting on the couch and like she's twisting his hair and he's sitting on the floor and he's just like wrapping <clears throat> his face off. Is that the brother and, like, that rolls with um, Eric Thomas? That is. That's the same brother. Gotcha, um, gotcha. And so like he came to Philly like about a year ago and um, and he went he did one of the, he did like uh, Eric Thomas like w- went on the radio and TV here and like one of the hosts, Quincy Harris, um, like, it's like, hey, this dude is dope. And so like I started listening and I was like, yeah, he's he's got it. And so. I mean, that's that's a lot of what I've been listening to, like, most recently uh, in terms of, like, like what's out right now, stuff like that. Got it. Got it. So you're balancing two courses. You've got work at a law firm. Where and how are you finding time to make music? And what is your goal with the music you're making? So with me, the music is a labor of love, and it's something that I know that I can't do at the pace that I once could. So... I, I go in knowing that like when I'm making a project, when I'm making a song, that it's going to take me more time because I just don't have the hours in the day that I used to. And so what that means in terms of like in a practical sense, like sometimes like I'm writing like after I put my children to sleep and most of my studio sessions are in the evening around this time or later. And then just like really just taking my time to get it right, like um, picking beats that I think are suitable Um and put breaking in session musicians to like add stuff to it, like taking my time recording it. And my ultimate goal is just to impact the culture. I tell people that something I often like to say 
is that hip hop and my old car have a lot in common. They both make a lot of noise and they're both are vehicles. And so, and I say, everyone's taking you for a ride. And so I want to take people to a better, <laughs> thank you. And so like, I just want to take people to a better understanding of the world as it is and the world as it could be. And so um, I want my music to go as far as it could. And so like, um, I, I've been really blessed to have had some meaningful opportunities up to this point. And when I can, I want to step in, throw my hat in the ring, um, put some songs out, put some verses out and see what happens. Yeah, and I think you're doing a great job, too, because, thank you You know, sometimes it's hard, right? I work with youth and we try and give them information in different ways. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, your class, the um, No City for Young Men, a narrative on mar- marginalization and the song, The Forethought is basically the same thing, but given information in two different ways. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you have to approach it like that and the video as well. So three different ways, because I'm a visual learner. Yeah. And, and, and that's really the goal, like just understanding that, like, this is this is the language that young people have been speaking the last 45 years. Um, and so, like, knowing that. Um, you know, I'm already been blessed with an opportunity to speak the language. So now it's just a matter of taking something that's important, putting it in this vehicle and taking them on a ride on this journey. And so like, if that means like, I got to rap to you, I'll rap to you. If that means I need to put a video with it. I'll put a video with it. If that means I need to bring your favorite rappers song into this lesson, we'll do that. Um, so like we can see what's happening right now uh, and like, and get a better view of uh, in, insights into the, in this world that we're living in. Do you have any thoughts on, um, <clears throat> I guess you yourself, you can, you could say between your message and also between your lifestyle, your career, there's a sense of accountability. Um, mm-hmm. There's a consistency there. And I know that people get a little sensitive around the subject of, well, just how a, a, accountable, should one be because a lot of it is opinion but at the same time at where where do you think is a safe place to kind of draw that line at what stage is should one or could one start to think well i should be accountable for this for what i'm doing or for the message mm. i'm putting out it or or at least take time to recognize that someone's life even if one person will begin to change because of the certain certain steps that I'm taking on this path. Yeah, like I think everybody should be held accountable for what they put out to the world to consume. And whether it's one song, whether it's um, a, a catalog f- full of albums, we should be responsible as artists, as creatives. And that doesn't necessarily mean to curtail every thought or to censor every idea, but to be responsible in how you present this information to the world. And like uh, artists love to celebrate when their music has a good impact. Like Kendrick um, was talking about Kendrick brought a fan on stage, I think last year who said that his song, one of his songs uh, prevented him from c- committing suicide. And I just heard an interview with one of Cuddy's producers and they were talking about like, you know, a lot of kids early on were saying day and night and just that man on the moon album uh, really saved their life and things like that. And it's so, like artists, love those moments but when people want to critique them for the negative influence say, well it's just art or it's just words and it's not or it's it's not that serious but it is that serious and in many ways like eminem said music can alter moves and talk to you and so what we're doing is powerful it impacts lives and people need to be mindful of that and so 
sometimes that means that you might, so like, you might want to talk about your vices, but you should talk about your vices in a way and saying, when I indulge in my vices, there are consequences that come with them. Or you might want to balance the idea of saying that I, I, sometimes I indulge my vices, but that's not, that's not the better part of who I am. And so like, there are ways that people can talk about some of the things that they talk about that could be more responsible. I think that some people are neglecting an opportunity to do so right now. I understand. And I guess another thing, another thing that comes to mind and um, because I kind of think of, I think of what's popular and sometimes what's popular doesn't necessarily stem from what's positive, positivity Mm -hmm. or, or consciousness, but yet it's popular for whatever reason, you know, the, the industry is like a machine and there, there could either be some organic appeal, there could be a little kind of, propaganda payola going on there's there's mm-hmm. different conversations but i guess the overall or overarching question is at what point is is it the responsibility or accountability of of sometimes if if ever those who are those who are tuning in and those who are consuming that's something we talk about in my class often. And I tell them that, honestly, everyone should be held accountable. And what I mean by that is, so as much as I might disagree or find someone's content objectionable, the littles and the youngs of the world or the people who are making some of this content that's destructive and things like that, these people only have a platform because people are watching the videos, because people are streaming the songs, because people are going to concerts. And so... These people are just people who are making songs in their in their apartments or like or just throwing links on SoundClouds until they get an audience. And so the audience absolutely bears an account for who we give audience to, for who we give a platform to, for who we pay to see. And in many ways, like we're seeing some people beginning to understand that, like you see the mute R. Kelly movement that started that should have happened two decades ago. But like you're seeing like people beginning to take ownership again of their buying power and seeing that I can speak with uh, not just my voice, but with my dollars. I also think, like I said, these artists should be held accountable and these corporations need to be held accountable too, because at at the end of the day, many of them are just looking at ways that they can get a return on investment, but they also need to be responsible for the content that they're putting out as well. What do you think, um, what do you th- is there anything that concerns you about this particular time when um as far as when you look at just pure purely society or <clears throat> the youth and connection to the music any any patterns that you're looking at or analyzing and is there anything of either a concern or on the flip side of it is there anything you're very hopeful about and, and before you answer that were you cognizant of that before um you did this album no city mm. for young men so those are great questions. I, what I'd say is that I'm always concerned about the level of impact that this music has on children and how these messages, some, sometimes the most destructive ones are the ones that are so quickly gravitated towards. I'll give you an example that's a little older. So when I was in college, one time I had just got my first apartment and me and my roommate went to the store to go grocery shopping. And this is like... 
maybe 2002, and I see this child walking down the aisle singing Styles P. I get high to show you how long ago this was. <laughs> and this, like I said, this child maybe is three, and this child's like, I get high, high, mm-hmm. high, and I was just like, this music. <laughs> <laughs> has this child has ingested this message and so I, I actually went home and wrote one of my songs called hypocrisy just talking about how the power of the music to do that so i said that to, i said all of that to say i'm always concerned about some of the music and especially how so many of these artists aren't necessarily living the lives that they're portraying, but they believe that whether I'm promoting drug dependency or promoting violence or misogyny um, because it sells, they're missing the impact that it's having on young people. So like that always concerns me. Uh, I am hopeful. Um, I am hopeful that like there are voices that are rising uh, or people like who, want to take their platform more seriously. Uh, I mean, I have my critiques of Cole. I have my critiques of Kendrick, but I at least see them trying. And um, beyond that, like, All Right became a protest song. Like, people are, like, out protesting systemic violence and structural imbalances and are singing, we're going to be all right. Uh, and just kind of shows you, like, that Kendrick is in the hearts and the minds of these young people. And so, like, that encourages me, like, to see... You know, like hip hop has since inspired that. Uh, and in terms of like uh, my album, these are definitely some of the things that were on my mind. Like, uh, like with the with No City for Young Men, the whole album is just concept dri- driven. Each song has like a different layered meaning or, or concept that is communicating. And so, so each of these were like areas of concerns or things that I wanted to point out to or speak to. And so, and then a song ends up coming from that. Gotcha. You you spoke on something that <clears throat> I think um, has been talked about here and there, but never consistently. And that is sort of the, you know, for lack of better words, sort of infatuation with, um, you know, just say it plain and simple, like sort of the drug dealer, mm-hmm. uh, mafiosa kind of influence. And I guess what what is it? in your opinion, or say maybe even your research where, and, and this is where I, where I break it down to, I break it down to the real world kind of like revolutionaries, like people that, you know, many would, it'd be hard to argue and say like, you know, well, I looked up to Malcolm, or I looked mm-hmm. up to Muhammad Ali, I look up to these like real figures. But when you take that approach versus say like, you know, there's so many, there's so many, there's a long list of artists who've compared themselves to uh, Rick Ross, a Noriega, mm-hmm. Italian mobs, Capones, um, you name it, you know what I'm saying? Pablo. And um, it's, what, what do you, what do you bring that down to? How do you define what's happening um, when we see that? So that's a combination of factors that's happening. So you have, some competing phenomena happening simultaneously. One, you got the crack epidemic. The federal government was participating in drug trafficking within the United States and and shifting just not only the the landscape of um, drug use in the United States, but directly having a hand in bringing some of the most potent drugs into urban America. And then you're seeing sentencing laws changing when you mix things like cocaine with water and baking soda and heat and you can now get an exponentially longer sentence for something that the federal government not only had a hand in bringing you, but even taught people how to do. 
And so like you've got that happening simultaneously with people who wanted to talk about that and saying this is what's authentically happening in my neighborhood. And so like you see the rise of people like N.W.A. who even though they embellish parts of their lifestyle, we're trying to talk about this is what's going on actually in Compton. And while like these things were actually happening, it then like when when NWA like comes out, like at the time that they came out, you couldn't talk about like violence openly or disparage women or like use profanity regularly and have mainstream hip hop embrace you. I know it sounds like like it sounds like an anomaly now or like almost unbelievable now. But like in 1988, when they came out doing that, like everyone tried everything they could to stop what was happening. But the people responded. And when when record execs saw the people responding to this organic movement that N.W.A. had created, they said, we were going to fund this because this is what's working. And so, like, you saw like this this steady movement towards trying to emulate what NWA was doing either out of a genuine sense of wanting to make authentic music or just trying to say, this is what's selling. And then like you start to get into the shock value and people trying to outdo each other to, to the point that you get a Rick Ross who's got no criminal record at the time he enters into the scene. Talk about, he know, the real Noriega, he owe me a hundred favors. I'm um, knowing good and well, like that's not true. So, <laughs> Yeah, but like, so so I said all that. So I mean, like, the short end is of it's like a lot's happening at the same time. Like, you've got real, like, the crack epidemic, like, destroying communities. You got people talking about it and becoming popular. You got people throwing money into the culture, saying, do what they did. And then, like, the, the process continues to unfold from there. I mean, do you, in some way or another, do you feel like that is, um, like, I mean, there, you, one could argue, like, there's many forces against Black people and have been for years, but I, I, I guess I, I find it sort of conflicting sometimes or always have where just, it's just like you said, in one sense, you're, you're worshiping someone, but, but in another sense, this, this same individual is, is responsible for the conditions that made your neighborhood the way it was or mm-hmm. impacted so many of your people in a negative way. But the infatuation with the with either the wealth or the lifestyle is so powerful. It's almost like it's you know, you you can see past it in some kind of way. Or people tend to it's like a blind eye kind of thing. Like Pablo alone was like, he's he's referenced so much. Yeah, he did yes. so much destruction. You know, absolutely killed people. He you know burned down planes, like all kinds of stuff. But like mm-hmm. no one ever talks about that people were really infatuated with the idea that he was making $420 million a week, you know, and, and that's more appealing. And so I, yeah, I, it's crazy. You know. I, I, and I think a lot of things are happening. I mean, like one, like some of our most powerful leaders were imprisoned or sent underground or killed. Like you look at like Fred Hampton is killed laying in his bed next to his pregnant wife. Uh, Malcolm X is shot and killed delivering a speech. King is killed the night before he's supposed to give a speech. Medgar Evers is killed. The federal government came after Angela's Davis and put her on the most wanted list. Asada Shakur, they're still trying to extradite her and bring her back from Cuba. And so like, we lost a lot of leaders who were at the forefront of the movement, who people were actually being guided by. And then you're right. There is this, this allure that people have of people who've kind of mastered the system. It's kind of like you, you are in the same spot that we are, but somehow you kind of rose above it. And like, you know, like you beat the man, so to speak. And like, now you can make $420 million a week. And like people would are willing to excuse the inexcusable to celebrate that 
when really we should be looking at why are these the only options that are put in front of us? Why does it, why do people feel like where they live is a trap? And like, I either got to stand on the corner and sell drugs or try to navigate my way out some other way, but it's probably not going to end up successful for me too. And so like, those are the questions we should be asking ourselves. But like you said, we're too busy at times getting excited by Pablo and Noriega and Frank Lucas and, and whoever else comes before or after them. Gotcha. Well, um, I want to jump just kind of into modern day at this moment and um, something that our, our Jimmy and I's first film was uh, called The Story of Independence, The Curative mm-hmm. Story of Independence. And um, it very much was about independent ownership, independent hustle, um, the grind that it takes of various artists or you could even just say practitioners mm-hmm. um, and sort of the importance of independence ownership and how that in itself is um you know a phenomenon or something that's very necessary and i guess what are your thoughts about like ownership from an artistry standpoint but also ownership even talking beyond art you know we could be talking about just ownership across the board and how important is that for the culture it's tremendously important because when we have ownership of the means of production and just ownership of what is being created, we can control the message and no longer have a message imposed upon us. There was an article put out yesterday talking about the music industry brought in $43 billion last year and only 12% of that went to artists. And that's in part because you got these major corporations that own most of the channels of the industry. And so artists don't own the rights to their music. They don't own their masters. They don't own their copyrights. They're, they don't own their publishing. And so... When revenue comes in via different streams, whether it's television and sync licensing deals or whether it's like um, royalties getting from coming from the radio or mechanical sales when you're selling like copies of something or you get money from streaming. A lot of these this revenue that's being generated is being given right back to these labels. And so and then when a label is fronting the cost of all of these things, when the label owns these things, they can tell you no. They can tell you, I don't like this message. They can tell you this isn't going to work. And they can, or even even try to retroactively erase your contribution. We saw that with Leor Cohen on The Breakfast Club last week. He's, he's trying to act like he don't know who Dame Dash is. And Dame Dash, Jay, and Kareem Biggs brought hundreds of millions of dollars to a corporation that Leor Cohen was running. And like now Leor Cohen has got a spat with with Dame Dash, he act like he don't know who he is. When it was Dame Dash being one of the visionaries and, and the minds behind the creation, but like Leor Cohen has this level of ownership where he can be like, well, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know who that is. Or you, or how many times have we seen artists like I wanted to put out the album, but the label said I need a single. Or the label says like I I, I want to put it out, I want to put out this album, but like I can't clear the sample because it costs too much. Or I can't right. get so we see right. we see a lot of that type of stuff happening, but like I think you all hit the nail on the head with so much of this changes when we when we take back ownership of the means to get the culture to the people. And I'm just trying to figure out like what I guess what what does that look like um all out? Like even, you know, even if the situation is hypothetical, because I'm not sure if you tap into this in your classroom, but when you talk about say, you know, blacks and entertainment like mm-hmm. it seems like everybody for 
there's been a legacy of sort of falling in line where like wherever you can get it, you can get it. Mm-hmm. And almost a sense of like this sponsorship, this uh, permission, um, always having to be granted to get access to kind of navigate your way, um, you know, up, you know, upward as far as uh, impact or as far as exposure. You know what I'm saying? You have your Harry Belafonte's, mm-hmm. you know, like kind of like one foot in, one foot out. So like revolutionary, but yet safe. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so fast forward to today and you have like, you know, you have some media owners, but it's like how I, all that's all that being said is like, what in your mind would it really take from like financial, um, you know, owning channels? Like, is it bigger than that? Um, is it private equity? Like how, how deep do you think it goes? I think it's I think it's multifaceted. I think we need our own channels. So I love what Puffy did, what Diddy did with Revolt. Um, we need outlets like that because you're exactly right. Because throughout our entire history as a people in this country, we've had to we've had to tap dance and shuck and jive and beg for a seat at the table and then be subservient to the presentations that that were given to us that we knew were false. Like Hattie McDaniel's. You know, she, she's playing mammy type roles, but she's hoping that somebody can come behind her and do something different. And she's and that tension has always been there. Do I take this role and hope for a better day and get this exposure now and be a groundbreaker and trailblazer? Or do I kind of like step back and do something different? And and that's not to fault her. I mean, she she was put in a difficult position, but some but now in the positions that we're in, I, I think we've seen a lot of models that work. Um, we see what Jay did with Rockefeller Records and then now with Rock Nation and how like he has basically said, I'm going to put my money behind my product and invest in myself. And we see very similarly with Chance the Rapper and, and making strategic alliances with corporations, but still operating pseudo independently. Or like I said, with Diddy owning a, a station or like looking at Jay own, owning title. These are different means in which we can take back ownership of this. And whether it's like an artist trying to navigate the, um, these roles and, and, and be independent to a degree or finding ways to creatively partner with a corporation that'll allow them to continue doing the art in an authentic way. Like you look at a TDE that became an independent powerhouse and they team with a major corporation, but they still have autonomy. They still have a great deal in place in terms of revenue sharing. So I don't think there is a one size fit all model for everybody, but I would encourage everyone to start where you are. Like you all are a great example. You all are passionate, you're insightful, you're, you're, you're engaged, and you've created a platform and I'm talking to you all now because you were, you were able to do something like that. And so whether that means launching a podcast, launching a radio show, being a curator of playlists, starting an indie label, I think we all have the means to do that. And sometimes that even means banding together and partnering with other people because that's what Jay had to do. Jay had to partner with two other people to get it, to get off the ground and we see what happens from there. So this, this, this is all key for me, you know, and then going back into the education, you know, I'm just proud to see someone like you who is in the education field at a PWI and representing hip hop in the way that you're representing it. You know, my only thank thing, you. yeah, man, my only thing is like, you know, some of the people you name, like, I know we were talking about how people glorify drugs and all of that, you know, TDE, they didn't start from venture capitalist money. That's you true. Know, That's true. Um, Jay-Z didn't start from venture capitalist money. You know, you got to start where you are in order to make it, but you got to be smart. 
you know, me personally, I, I, the first person who had, and I said, Jermaine already know, the first person who had me to like lyrics I listened to was Trick Daddy. And that's because mm. I'm from Florida. I'm from the projects. There was no way I was listening to AZ because he doesn't know where I'm from, doesn't sound like me or look like me. You yeah. know, my trick that is like, yo, next door. You yeah, know, absolutely. Or, or big homie around the corner. That's somebody I can see. That's somebody I knew. That's somebody I related to. So to get to where you are, you know, as a lawyer, you know, um, and you you had a lot of advantages growing up. You're a classical piano player. You played two instruments. You know, I don't know anybody that grew up in my community who played one instrument. You mm. didn't have that opportunity, so you got to hit people where they are. But eventually, give them an opportunity to grow and then get to where you are currently and sit in your class and have this conversation. And that's where we get educated. You know. Jermaine and I are two different people, but we also the same person. We mm. just grew up and came up in two different areas, but our mind state is the same. You yeah. Know? You can make a song about um, buying property, buying buildings, but you're going to be preaching to the choir. But when Rick Ross, 2 Chains, and Gucci Man made the song Buy Up the Block, Mm-hmm. They're talking to so many different people that we couldn't touch, and that's key. So i'll I'll take I'll take the good with the bad as long as it's good that comes with it because we do need a mixture of it all. Yeah, and and honestly, like you know, I, I'm with you. Like you know, I wish that Jay or like Ti or TDE, I wish like they had different opportunities to where that they didn't have to use drug money to start their businesses. But I also am of the mind of understanding that they were in precarious situations. They made questionable decisions, but they are now to the extent that they can trying to make good on these empires that they've built. And I appreciate that. I appreciate that aspect tremendously. Just the idea of not staying where they were. And like, you know, I still at times like have issues with some of the things that they put out, but like, I, I really marvel at, at some of the growth that I've seen in them because I, I don't know any of them personally, but I, I remember just watching them from afar as they became public figures and seeing where each of these men are now. And like you're saying, like offering meaningful opportunities and people hang off their every words. Like right. people quote, people quote J lyrics, like they're Bible scriptures. I'm like, like, <laughs> right. right, right. You know, I see people like tweeting out his, I'm like, I'm like, what is this? All oh, this, that's a J lyric, but, I'm like, but they're tweeting it out. Like it, like this is your scripture for the day type of thing. And I'm like, <laughs> Word of the day. <laughs> it, that, I mean, that's how people treat it, but it just shows you the power of this music to speak to people. And that's why, like, as often as I can, I try to use it for that means and just encourage other people to do the same thing. When I when I get audience with some of these guys, it's one of the things I'm pushing them to do, too. Just, like, know, like, people hang off your every word and you're, you're touching people that you may never see again, that, that you may not even know about. Right. And you mentioned your... your... The, the sort of category of law would fall under civil. Is that correct? Yeah. Right now I do civil rights um, work. Civil rights, right? Mm-hmm. Perfect. So I have a civil rights question and that's, and, and basically that is where does civil rights, and I guess you could say the hip hop movement coincide at this point for you, not just your work, but I guess abroad, like basically 
what's the connection? I think the two have always been connected. I mean, I mean, hip hop arose out of people responding to just what it mean, meant for to be re- relegated to the worst part of their cities and just to be forgotten. And so like people raised up their voices and made a culture and a genre of music responding to that. But like, even to give you a modern example. So, um, there was a young man in Pittsburgh. He was um, shot by the police. His name's Antoine Ross. He, uh, uh-huh. Not Ross, Rose. I'm sorry. Antoine Rose was killed by a police officer in Pittsburgh about two months ago. Uh, there was a traffic stop. Um, and Antoine feared for his life. He ran and the officer shot him in the back. And so a good friend of mine is representing his family and they're working with the prosecution and then also considering filing a wrongful death suit. So you've got the civil rights angle, like the legal side going along with that. But then too, there was a significant amount of protests that were happening in the city that were led by some hip hop artists, one of whom is Jaziri X. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so here's Jaziri. And I was talking to him about this. He was in town uh, over the weekend at a show. And I was talking to him about this. And I said, the attention that you all brought to Antoine's case has helped pressure the prosecutor to bring charges against this police officer. Yeah, absolutely. Like um, my friend um, Lee Merritt, the attorney for the family, they've been pressuring the prosecution as well. That's been working, but it's this continual pressure from all sides. Um, so Lee's, Lee's in, uh, in the media and people are interviewing him and he's getting the family on TV and in publications. Jaziri is leading people out in the streets and they're out there. They were out there every day, organized in the tens of thousands at times, um, protesting this young man's death. And this is like hip hop. These are like Jaziri, not only is he like a dope MC, but like he's an activist. And he's saying like, I want to use my platform as an artist for bigger issues. And so, uh, and this is bringing about a meaningful a change in their own community and it's and it's wedding civil rights um with the music with the culture for you to get involved um in civil rights was there was there um i guess you can say a a key moment that sparked that was it a similar sort of adverse situation or was it more so a collection a collective of, of things that inspired you to say like okay this is the path i want to go down it was a both and. Uh, my my parents are of the civil rights era, so to speak, and I just remember hearing their stories and just was always fascinated by the time of the nation's history. Like my mom lived in Memphis when King was killed, and like I just remember hearing her tell those stories. And but for me, the the thing that really grabbed my attention was when I was a freshman in college, <laughs> and I was I was volunteering at this at this middle school near my alma mater Morehouse at the time. And I get there on the first day and I'm with, the, I'm in the sixth grade science class. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and thank you. And the teacher says, listen, if you can just keep Cedric, um, if you just can keep him under control, I can handle the other 25 or some odd students. And I'm like, you know, Cedric, he's a little guy. I mean, like how, how much trouble can he be? So I go over and start working with them. And so she gives me a worksheet and we're working and we're talking about the material. And he seems to understand everything. And I said, Cedric, write your name down on the paper. Let's go on and fill out this worksheet. And he spells the same really slowly. And then he says, I just last spent last week. And I said, what did you just say? And he said, I just last spent last week. And I said, did you just say you learned how to spell your name last week? 
And he said, yeah. And so I I was blown away because so like so I'm in Atlanta, uh, this is the west end of Atlanta. I went to a school in the same county of the same state, Fulton County. The school that I went to was a national school of excellence. I got an I got a great education because I was in an affluent white suburb. And here this kid is in the middle of this of the city. He's 15 in the sixth grade and learned how to write his name the week before I met him. And and he's expected to compete against kids who went to my schools. So when it comes to standardized testing, when it comes to just being able to compete on the job market, he hasn't been served by the educational system. And I got every opportunity where I was. And so I said, I can't, I can't let this just go by and not do anything about it. And so for me, that started it all for me. I started mentoring and tutoring at that school three to four times a week. And then from there, that's when I started working with the educational nonprofit. And then so I volunteered with them the entire time I was in college. And then I started a mentoring program um, with my friend Lee, who's also an attorney. And then um, from there, I went on to law school and I, I bounced around a little bit and did a lot of different types of law. But I always wanted to do something that I could do some meaningful work for people and help people who are having real problems. And so when this position where I have now opened up last year, I jumped at the opportunity. And I'm really grateful that I have the chance to do the work that I'm doing now. Yeah, and that's some good work it is, brother. Um, Thank we're, you. We're Thank very you. happy for you, and um, we're we're happy that we had this opportunity to talk. Um, anything else you want to add, Jimmy? Nah, I'm I'm good, man. What about what about you, <laughs> Professor? <laughs> man, I'd like, a, like a, <laughs> I mean, let, just like I said at the top, man, I, I appreciate doing um we need real curators of hip-hop a lot of people throw that word curating around um but like a lot of people who are throwing that word around don't care about the culture don't care about its people but y'all do and so i really appreciate what y'all are doing and i'm grateful for this opportunity that y'all gave me tonight and just an opportunity to share what i'm doing like where my mind is and all of that so i'm glad to have been able to talk to y'all tonight Thanks for listening to the Curators of Hip Hop podcast. To learn more about the movement and the work we're doing, visit thecohh.com, as well as Curators of Hip Hop fan page on Facebook and the COHH on Instagram and Twitter. Peace out.